This morning our scripture reading is taken from the Psalms, and specifically from Psalm 1. Psalm 1, uh, all six verses. Uh, That's our scripture reading this morning. And then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 to 11. That's the entire chapter, although uh, albeit a brief one. So once again, our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 1. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 29. Brothers and sisters, a reminder. The Word of God is about to be read and preached. These are not the mere words of men. Certainly, God's Word itself, the Bible, what we have in our hands, what you're about to be heard read, this is the very Word of the Lord. This is God speaking to His children, to you, His people. This is our Heavenly Father speaking words of encouragement, speaking words of of chastisement at times, speaking words of warning for those who do not heed Him, speaking words of love to His children who are called according to His purposes. So please give your full attention to God's Word as it is now to be read. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? 
What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This ends the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful to you, Lord, for your word and for these instances in your word where you show to us how you, O Lord, are sovereignly in control. How you govern the affairs of men. And how even though there are some in this world who oppose you completely, dear Lord, they, they too are governed by your will. We pray that our passage, Lord, and the sermon that exposits it would be a great encouragement to us today. But more than that, Lord, as important as it is, we pray that the preaching of your word would be glorifying unto you. And so we ask, Lord, that as your word is preached now, that we as a congregation would continue in our worship of you, the triune God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now you probably remember that we took note of the fact last week that this passage that we have today follows chronologically on the heels of chapter 28, verse 2. With chapter 28, verses 3 to 25 taking place in time after the events of this chapter. That may seem a little bit confusing, but... We saw that the author placed David and Saul side by side, each in the midst of his own crisis. And David's crisis was revealed to us in chapter 28, verse 1, when Achish, the king of Gath, told David that he and his men would fight alongside the Philistines against Israel. And then, for the remainder of chapter 28, we were held in suspense until our present chapter, when we uh, we were able to find out how David had escaped from his dilemma, from that test in which he found himself in the wilderness. Now, after Saul asked a medium to bring the prophet Samuel back to him so that he could inquire of him, and and Samuel's subsequent dire prophecy that Saul would die the very, very next day, that, of course, was Saul's dilemma, we must once again wait to find out how it plays out. We don't get to hear the rest of the story about Saul until chapters 30 and 31. But what we see in the way that these two chapters are set side by side with one another, what we see in the way that that the author of 1 Samuel has inverted the chronology, what we see is that these two men are at the mercy of others. Saul, of course, is at the mercy not only of the Philistine army that's arrayed against him at Shunem, but he's also at mercy to this medium that he had visited. We saw at the end of chapter 28 how she, she took charge, she took command. She began giving him orders and telling him what to do. She forced him to eat and then she forced him on out the door. 
She wanted Saul gone from there after what had just taken place in her home. He was at the mercy, Saul was, of his two men who had also heard the prophecy of Saul's impending death from this resurrected Samuel. But David, too, is at the mercy of others. He's at the mercy of Achish, who looked upon him favorably. But he also finds himself at the mercy of the other commanders of the Philistines' armies, who did not want any Hebrews fighting alongside them against Israel. But ultimately, and here's the point we need to keep in mind, ultimately both Saul and David were at the mercy of the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone has the power to raise kings up and to make them fall. And what we see in the life of David was that he was like the tree of Psalm 1 that's planted by streams of water, blessed by the Lord and prospering in all that he does. But Saul... The king who repeatedly, over and over again, rejected the word of the Lord was like the chaff that the wind drives away. Well, during the sermon today, I would ask you to keep this thought in mind, to keep this this point in front of you. The sinless Son of God was despised and insulted, mocked and rejected, so that sinners like you and me could be delivered from his Father's wrath. Let me say that one more time. The sinless Son of God was despised and insulted, mocked and rejected, so that sinners like you and me could be delivered from his Father's wrath. The sermon, like usual, is divided into three sections, three points. The first point, pass in review. The second point, devil of war. And the third, angel of God. Again, these three sections of the sermon this morning are pass in review. That's the first, the second, devil of war, and the third, angel of God. So let's look at the first section, the first point of the sermon, pass in review. Verse 1 says, uh, from chapter 29, it says, Now the Philistines had gathered all of their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Now we remember that in last week's passage, the Philistine and the Israelite armies are encamped far to the north. But here the Philistines are down at Aphek, which was only about 25 miles north of the city of Gath, which is Achish's home city. They haven't traveled that far. They're on their way up to the north. That's what tells us. That's that's the indicator that tells us that the author has inverted the chronology. They're moving away from their home base to the south, from the Philistine lands uh, that are to the south and the west of Judah and Israel. And they're moving up into Israelite territory. Here, the Philistines are at Aphek. Uh, next, uh, in, in the next, or the passage that preceded this, and the passage after during the battle, they have traveled all the way far to the north near Shunem, which was about 17 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And the leaders of the Philistine armies appear to be conducting a type of pass in review, uh, during which they inspect their military forces as they pass in front of them. Now, this may sound like a strange thing to do, but every newly inaugurated president carries out at least an abbreviated form of a pass in review. And and many, many movies love to show the forces of some leader or other who is arrayed before him out on the plains to see the magnitude of uh, their forces. 
And of course, there are great images from history, I'm thinking uh, of Nazi Germany and the way that the leader of, of uh, Germany at that time looked upon his forces with favor before they went out into war. But these troops, these soldiers, are passing in front of the leaders, these generals uh, of the armies of the Philistines. And verses 2 and 3 say that as the lords of the Philistines were, were, uh, were passing on um, by hundreds and thousands, that David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? This is the first time that these generals, these commanders, that it comes to their knowledge that David and some of the Israelites are making up part of the force. And it seems that at this point, Achish is summoned. Perhaps he's already there and David is simply back in the the rear with Achish's men. But in verse 3, he's there before the commanders and he's offering them an explanation. He says to them, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I found no fault in him to this day. For one year and four months, for 16 months, David and his men, their wives and children, along with all of their livestock, they have been with Achish. They've been living to the south of Gath, Achish's home city in in the city of Ziklag. And as far as Achish knew, they were carrying out, David and his men were carrying out expeditions against the people of Judah. And David has made Achish an even wealthier man by bringing the spoils of his victories back to Achish as tribute. He has shown his loyalty to Achish for many months. And so it's inconceivable to Achish that it would be problematic for David to join with them in battle. And of course, he's told David that he's going to make him his bodyguard for life. Achish reminds the other commanders that this is none other than David, the servant of Saul, who is now dedicated to Achish. And that word that's translated there, servant, it could also be translated slave. And this might be a better indicator of what Achish is trying to to say here what he's trying to communicate. He seems to be at least implying, if not stating somewhat more overtly, that just as David was once a slave to Saul, so now he's a slave to Achish. He's totally dedicated and loyal. And this, of course, is borne out of Achish's thinking at the end of chapter 27, where he said to himself, and it's recorded for us, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant or slave. Achish thinks he has David in his hip pocket, that he is his attack dog, that he's his bodyguard. Achish also understands that David doesn't have any choice. Achish understands the, the dilemma that David finds himself in. He can't go back to Israel. Achish knows that Saul will kill David. That's why David fled to Gath in the first place, even uh, twice now. And so why would David bite the hand that feeds him? That is Achish. But the commanders of the army of the Philistines, they don't see it that way. And that leads us to the second point of the sermon, devil of war. In verse 4, we read this, But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, that is with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle. Lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? 
Now we'll go a little further into how Akish views David in the next section, but here it is very plain that the generals of the army want nothing to do with David. They don't trust David. They do not want him and his men to be a part of their expeditionary force. They want Akish to send David back down to Ziklag. And they stated no uncertain terms that David will not go with them into battle. And the reason that they give is that he might become an adversary to him. Now this word that's translated adversary, you may already know where I'm going with this. This is the same word for Satan. Here it's used in a, in a, not in a formal sense, in an informal sense. And so we might loosely understand this. I think it might be anachronistic to do so, but we could sort of view this as, as uh, along the lines of a devil. And so a wooden translation might be, he cannot go down with us lest he become a devil of war against us. Now, there might be an element of fear underneath the commander's opposition to David. It might just not simply be a practical matter for them. They might be somewhat afraid. Remember that at the beginning of this chapter, in the pass in review of the Philistine troops, they were passing by in groups of 100s and 1,000s. But the Philistine commanders remember the song that the people have sung about David. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Perhaps we could put it slightly different, his tens of thousands. If the songs about David are true, he's killed as many Philistines as have passed before the commanders this very day. So why take the risk? Why add to the Philistines' liability? What if David and his men turn out to be the stinger in the tail of the scorpion that strikes itself? If they turn against the Philistines in the middle of battle against the Israelites, the Philistines might not make it out alive. Remember, David had cut off the head of Goliath and presented it to King Saul. What better way to win back Saul's favor than with the heads of the Philistine soldiers? This is the logic that these commanders are using as they speak to Achish to persuade him, to convince him, indeed to tell him, to command him, you will not let David fight with us. But ironically and unwittingly and against their will, the general's decision to reject David from their service works for David's good. And that's because even though these men don't know it, they are working according to the will of the sovereign God. Now, the discussion up to this point has taken place in David's absence. He's apparently down on whatever field they are passing along. The leaders are up high enough that they can see the various troops passing before them. So he doesn't know what the Philistine generals are thinking. He may not even know that they're talking to Achish, although David is no dummy. And he probably recognizes the fact that he will be scrutinized, his men will be scrutinized as they're doing this pass in review. Whether he is aware or not, it is very likely at this point that he's feeling a little nervous. He's been in difficult situations before, but nothing like this. Because David faces two impossible choices as the line of troops of which he is a part makes their way to war with Israel. Either he goes to war and is an active combatant against his own people and his king. Or he tries to pull off a battlefield defection which would bring him back into alliance with the man who has persecuted him 
for years, King Saul. And just doing that would be a risky endeavor on his part, just trying to defect without being killed by the Philistines, much less the subsequent persecution that he would face at the hands of Saul. But the good news here is that David doesn't need to do a thing, even though he probably doesn't realize that right now. His rejection by the generals of the Philistine army will ultimately end up decisively in his favor. And that leads us to the third point of the sermon, angel of God. After his conference with the generals, Achish called David over and he said, As Yahweh lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to me this, uh, to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Now at this point... At these words, you can imagine David's heart leaping in his chest for joy, but he's got to play it very cool right now. This reads like a spy novel thousands of years before the genre was invented. In fact, some have said that that the book of Joshua, the book of 1 Samuel, that these were the first stories, the first spy stories. David here has to feign disappointment. Not too much disappointment, otherwise Akish might try to appeal to the generals on David's behalf and actually end up fighting in this battle. And so he asks Akish in verse 8, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord and king? Now the reality is, and we know this, we're in on the joke in a sense, The reality is that everything David has done up to this point would validate the Philistine general's suspicion of him. But none of them know anything about that. He has ensured that there are no witnesses who are left alive to be able to go back and to report to Achish or anyone else his activities to the south of Gath. Achish might think of David as his slave, and David might encourage that perception, but David's loyalty, make no mistake, is to God and to his people Israel. David has done more damage to the Philistines in his 16 months as a slave to Achish than Saul had done during his entire reign as king. And Achish responds to David's questions in verse 9 and following, where he says, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. There's some irony. He continues, Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. And so we see here that David had played his hand just right. He had feigned just enough outrage and disappointment to keep Achish convinced that he is loyal to him, but not enough to make Achish want to go back and persuade the generals to let David fight for them. And so Achish tells David to depart with his men early the next morning and to return to the land of the Philistines. And verse 11 reports that David and his men did just that. Well, the Philistines went on up to Jezreel. Now we need to, re- to remind ourselves here. And this is, this is one of the basic rules of interpreting Scripture. We need to remind ourselves that this, what we're reading this morning, is descriptive. It's not necessarily proscriptive. In other words, we're not telling, or prescriptive, I guess I should say, we're we're not being told by God's word that it is always right in every case to lie to other people in order to save your own skin. 
We have to remind ourselves that David was in a very unique situation here. He's a unique figure in history. And his position at this point makes him even more unique. He is the anointed but not yet inaugurated and enthroned king of Israel. He is carrying out activities behind enemy lines. Think of him really as a spy. He's conducting covert operations. He's going against the enemy. And that does require deception on the part of a person who is working for the state, for the government. Whether or not Saul acknowledges him as doing such, David is anointed. He has been anointed as king by the Lord, by his prophet Samuel. And he will conduct these operations, whether Saul condones them or has authorized them or not. The place of of the king is held by a man who alternates between pure hatred and fatherly love for David. David can't trust Saul. And so it is extremely rare for any of us in this room, or indeed most Christians, to find ourselves in a similar situation which calls for us to be deceptive, to be answerable to a higher law, even while on the surface it might appear that we're disobeying one of God's commands. David, as the future king of Israel, is already acting like Israel's king by going to battle against their enemies, the Philistines. And for nearly one and a half years, he has been behind enemy lines doing just that, engaged in these covert activities. And so this has required David to engage in deception with Achish, his vassal king. But he has finally found himself in a situation that is impossible for him to escape. David is a brilliant man. He's a brilliant tactician. He is very wise in many, many ways, but he's not smart enough to get himself out of this situation. And so this might be a surprise to you, but it is unlikely that you or I will find ourselves in a similar situation. And so as we found a couple of weeks ago, it's difficult for us to take what happens in this passage and apply it directly to ourselves. But there are a couple of general remarks and general applications that we can make. One thing that we can say for absolute certain is that this passage does not teach us to expect that God is going to miraculously deliver us out of every dilemma in which we find ourselves in this life. That's That's a good general application. God is not going to necessarily, he might, it's up to him. But we can't count on him to just miraculously open up the gates and allow us to escape a very dire situation. However, I do think that there's a positive general principle that we can take from this passage and and, and apply it to ourselves. And that is this. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you already have been delivered from ultimate harm, the wrath of God. Now, we tend to think of of ultimate harm in less than ultimate ways. We think of of, of terrible ultimate harm probably being just death itself or a miserable death or dying of some very painful disease. Living in poverty, that's ultimate harm for some people. Being misidentified, called by the wrong name, that's ultimate harm for other people. Those are all relative harms. Subjective. 
ultimate harm is suffering the wrath of God the Father for eternity. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that they needed to fear the one who had the power to cast them into hell. And he wasn't talking about Satan there, because Satan doesn't have that power. That's the power that only the sovereign king of the universe has. That is ultimate harm. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not suffer that ultimate harm. And so this passage shows us that there is no difficulty in our lives that is impossible for God to correct. Nothing is impossible for God. He could deliver you from your present relatively painful or sorrowful situation. He could, but he may not choose to do so. And if he chooses not to do so, that doesn't mean that he hates you. What others may intend for evil, God intends for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And so it is unrealistic and even unbiblical to think that you shouldn't have to suffer since you're a Christian. But any suffering in this life, as bad as it may be, when compared to eternal suffering in hell, does not seem so bad. You see, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have already been delivered from the fiery wrath of God's displeasure at your sin. The hatred, and indeed, it is hatred that God has for your and my sin, for, for the sins of all humankind. The hatred that he has for your and my sin, or, or better, I should say, that he had for your and my sin. It was poured out on his only begotten son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was rejected not only by the Roman people and even his fellow Jews, by most of his disciples at the end of his life while he was on the cross, but Jesus Christ was rejected by his Father as he suffered and died on the cross. And this was so, so that we, so that you and I, we could be delivered from God's wrath to eternal life and peace. And like King David with the Philistines, we did nothing, nothing to make our deliverance happen. It was all by the grace of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are indeed thankful to you that our salvation rests in your hands alone, that you have already delivered us from damnation, from hell, from the punishment that we so rightly deserve because of our sins, and that we who believe in Jesus Christ, that we will spend eternity with you at peace in heaven. We are thankful that the rejection of Jesus Christ resulted in our deliverance. We're thankful, O oh Lord, that he was willing to give up his life so that we would not have to give up ours. We pray, dear Lord, that you would make us even more thankful because of this news. 
that you would give us joy in our hearts, that you would fill us with gladness, that you would enable us by your Spirit to sing your praises because of the goodness of the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name.